0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a covenant renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: Our call to confession this morning is taken from Proverbs 19. <clears throat> Verse 20, listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Here we are given a command and a justification for listening to it. First, we're commanded to listen and receive. God expects us to look around us and recognize that we have much to learn. This requires humility, and the sooner we learn that, the better off we will be. This instruction is directed to youths primarily, because he's telling them that they may be wise in their latter days. Youths need to hear this, young people, because they're precisely the ones who don't listen to counsel or receive instruction. They haven't yet experienced the difficulties of life, and they haven't been knocked around by its harsh realities. If we refuse to obey this command, the inverse truth which this proverb teaches is true. If you don't listen to counsel and you don't receive instruction, you won't be wise in your latter days. You condemn yourself to foolishness and its consequences. The answer is to be found in the fact that God expects us to take the long view This proverb encourages us to consider where we will end up. Our latter days are those which are in our future. And the idea here is that we should take care what we do now, that we may have wisdom later. Wisdom is available to us. In James 1, verse 5, we read, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Here again we see that humility is necessary. We must look outside of ourselves for wisdom. We must turn to God to request wisdom. But we also see that wisdom is available. as a free <laughs> gift from our God who gives to us liberally. So what are we to do now? We're to listen to counsel and receive instruction that we may be wise in our latter days. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so please kneel if you're willing to last week Solomon gave us a tremendous confession of faith. God is sovereign over time, and he makes everything fitting or beautiful in its time. And this is one of the central messages of the whole Bible. The Bible starts out that way. God is sovereign because He created it, the world. Genesis 1. The whole book of the Bible communicates this. The whole story of the Bible is that God is working in this world, He's working through history and His people. And God's sovereign over it all. And the Bible ends that way. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. God is sovereign over time. But right here in the middle of the Bible, Solomon is teaching us wisdom. And wisdom must wrestle with reality. So as soon as Solomon makes his confession that God is sovereign over time, he must defend his confession. The problem of evil is very real. There are serious objections to God's sovereignty in the world. And intelligent men recognize that faith can be hard. Faith is difficult because of evil. Today we'll be looking at the first three things that Solomon instructs us about. The world that seem antithetical to God's sovereignty. We'll be looking at injustice, death, and oppression, and then we'll look at how we can hold on to faith in an all-powerful, sovereign, and good God in a world in which these harsh realities exist. Remember, Solomon just got done saying, "I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever." Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before Him. And that, that which is has already been. That which is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. Three key phrases in those two verses. Whatever God does, it shall be forever. God does it that men should fear before Him. And God requires an account of what is past. But in a world with injustice, death, and oppression, how can God be all-powerful, sovereign, and good? The first difficulty that Solomon inflicts upon our brains is injustice. We read in verse 16 of chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. So as soon as Solomon declares God's sovereignty, he observes wickedness. And he observes it in two places, in the place of judgment and in the place of righteousness. And these are precisely the places where we should expect to find justice and purity. But instead we find wickedness in both of them. So first, what, what is the place of judgment? It's, it's where you go to get justice. It's the legal system and the courts. It's the rulers of the land, parents, teachers, and authority figures. These are God's representatives to mankind. They are tasked with exercising justice and maintaining law and order in the land. But what do we see when we start taking a closer look at these places of judgment? Our legal system is corrupt. Wealthy people can pay their way out of problems. They get away with breaking the law sometimes. Instead of requiring robbers to give restitution or murderers to die, we give them a meal ticket and we sentence them to a life locked up in a cage. It doesn't do any good. Opportunistic and sue-happy lawyers damage industry and they tax our society with high prices, whether it's goods, services, or health care. It's not justice. Some of the courts in our land even have the audacity to define marriage contrary to nature, and they offer it to the homosexuals. And even at the highest level, we protect Murderers, and we condemn the innocent with legalized abortion. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. Lady Justice is supposed to be blind, but she is not. Instead of purity, we find wickedness. It's a common place in our society that politicians are corrupt. Honest men, if they're honest when they get to office, must learn to stretch their integrity until it's not even recognizable anymore. The other option is to leave after one term. This is wickedness. Read the papers and see what injustices parents, parents carry out against their own children. The worst is grotesque and criminal, but even in seemingly normal families, parents are frequently guilty of injustice on various fronts. Some play favorites with their kids, preferring one child over another. Some abuse their kids emotionally, or with language, or even with their fists. Some parents abandon them to be raised by their peers, the government, or the television. All this is wickedness. In the place of justice. Corruption is also to be found among our teachers, the police, and just about everywhere you start digging. And this is because all of these roles are filled by sinners. And sinners sin. It's what they do. So the place of justice has wickedness. And I'm not saying that the, the, the laws, the, the, our court systems are completely corrupt. There's a lot of justice that happens in our society. But if you look, there's still places where you can identify wickedness, where there should be justice. What's the place of righteousness? The place of righteousness is the church. If men were to seek righteousness in our world, in this world under the sun, where should they turn to look? The church. The church has been referred to as the conscience of a society. Men should be able to find righteousness in the place where it is supposed to be found. But the problem is, is when we look at the church, what do we find? The church is weak. It's divided. It's confused. Its leadership is a mixed bag. There are plenty of rotten apples to spoil the bunch in short if you look at the church you can find wickedness there even in the church but the church is for sinners too right so here's the problem if God is good and sovereign if God's in control of all of this then how can it be that we see wickedness in the very places which should be the most pure this is Solomon's response. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Solomon responds with a statement of faith again. Wickedness is in the place of judgment and in the place of righteousness, but that that isn't about to shake Solomon's faith in God. His faith is in God. It's not in the institutions of men. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Just because we see wickedness in places where it shouldn't be doesn't mean that we could toss God out the back door. No, those righteous and those wicked will answer to him in the end. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. Moreover, the institutions are temporary, they're vaporous, they're vanity. This injustice can be pointed to, but it will not derail God's sovereignty. Remember, God does it that men should fear before him. So the next challenge against God's sovereignty is death. Verses 18 to 21 of chapter 3. I said in my heart concerning the conditions of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust. And all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So here Solomon is chopping us down a notch or two. He's, he's whacking our pride around a little bit. Now we're no longer any different from the animals? Because we're all dying, we're the same as the animals. In the vanity of death, man and beast are alike. Because we die, we're the same as the animals. In fact, certain animals, the bowhead whale, certain tortoises, and some koi fish have the advantage over men. Some of them live over 200 years. But in the end, we all die, and we return to the dust. So, how are we all like animals? We return to the dust. Solomon isn't saying that we don't know if animal or animal spirits and our spirits are different. He's saying we can't prove it. There's no way empirically, by our senses, by what we experience in this world, on this earth, under the sun, that we can know just by looking around us whether we're any different than the animals. Nobody dies and then comes back and tells us what life will be like after we die, if there is life after we die. And remember, Solomon said right here in verse 18 that God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. So yes, we all die. And from looking around us, we don't look any different than the animals. In fact, large sections of our society say we are just highly developed animals. It's because they don't have faith. But it is an appropriate conclusion if you don't have faith. We we are no different than them here on the earth. However, in faith, in the light of last week's declaration of faith, We are not like the animals. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We're not content with our cud like the cow. We're not just, you know, you you give a cow a, a comfortable place to sleep, a full belly, and she's just happy to lay there all day long and chew her cud. That's what she's happy. She's content with that. Give your dog a nice warm place by the fireplace, and they don't want... Anything better than that. They're happy. If you give them a steak, they're, oh, they're happy. They're content. Animals don't desire for more than they know. But men have a yearning for that. Men, men desire for more than they know. Animals don't send around, sit around spending valuable hours debating the finer points of religion and philosophy. Animals don't build temples churches or mosques or philosophy departments but men do god has placed eternity in our hearts we have a yearning desire to figure out more than what we know but even with all of our meditations and cogitations and reflections on life and death and the meaning of it all we still die just like the animals we're still bound to this earth we still return to the dust How does that show God's sovereignty? Solomon's conclusion here is that if we must die the same as the animals, then we better enjoy it while it lasts. Verse 22. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? That is his heritage. That is his portion. That is his lot. That is what God gives to men. The gift that we have is the the enjoyment of the work that we have. God gives men the ability to rejoice in their work. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Since men die and don't know the future, we should endeavor to make the most of the work we have to do here before we die. Because we die and we don't know what's gonna happen in the future, we're called to do the most that we can with what God has given to us. Invest your talent. We need to endeavor to make the most of what we have to do here before we die. Because when we die, we can't do it anymore. Seize the day, take advantage of the moments that you have. But we can't do that except with faith. We must have faith that there is more to life than our experience of death. We must have faith that God is testing us and that He has a purpose in all the work that we're doing. Without that faith, then this is all there is and we must grasp it and it makes us worry, and it makes us concerned, it takes away the joy. But with faith, knowing that God is in control, and and seizing the day, doing what He gives us to do, enjoying the work that He gives us to do, we can enjoy it. And we can trust God to judge the righteous and the wicked. But death is an objection to God's sovereignty. The last objection to God's sovereignty that we're considering today is oppression. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. This is the darkest objection we've covered yet. And and here in the text, right here in verses 1 to 3, there isn't even a nod to an answer here. Solomon is straight up despairing. The dead are more fortunate than the living and better than any of them as those who never even existed in the first place. So what brought this conclusion? Oppression. Oppression and tears without comfort. Suffering without aid. Pain without comfort. Enduring subjugation to offenders and violence. If God is sovereign and if God is good, how come people are oppressed? How is that fitting or beautiful in its time? When I started thinking about this, what came to mind for me was the plight of children and refugees in third world countries. The despised and the outcasts. People whose entire existence, from birth to death, is one suffering after another. Orphans, widows, captives and slaves, lepers, drug babies, AIDS victims and kidnapped people. These are the people whose existence is so distressing that they curse the day of their birth, just like Job did. Solomon is not simply glossing over the hard parts of life. Solomon's not a fair-weather friend. He's giving some joy here. That's his point. But he's not ignorant of the difficult questions. He's not ignorant of the harsh realities of life. Nobody can say, oh, but you didn't consider this. With this, God can't be sovereign. Solomon does not deny this very difficult and harsh reality. He knows that oppression exists under the sun. Solomon has no problem acknowledging that from the oppressed perspective, non-existence seems like a pretty excellent option. It's certainly much more preferable preferable to suffering, torture, and pain. Without faith, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, if you don't believe that God is testing you here on this earth, non-existence is preferable to existence in oppression. But this is why Solomon brings it up here. His argument has been an argument for joy in the midst of the vanity. What we're talking about is the problem of evil. Evil does exist. And because evil exists, our faith is hard. How do you maintain faith in a place where there's evil? Oppression is evil. But faith holds on to God despite that. In the end, we are the ones being grilled. God is the one testing. God is the one asking the questions. We need to learn the lesson that he's giving to us. We don't get to test God. We don't get to ask him the questions. Solomon doesn't want to leave a hole in his argument. The reason he he, he he comes here to depression and to oppression and it being better never to have existed because of oppression is because the joy that he's offering is a deep joy. It's not a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants joy. It's not a joy that just scratches the surface. This is a joy that is deep. It's one that will endure through the hard trials. The joy that is available to men is a joy that is born out of strong faith. And that faith must rest in a sovereign God. Sovereign, even over the times of oppression. He ordains them. Because if he doesn't ordain them, then we have no hope. If he does, then we can trust to his greater knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So, in conclusion, first I need to tell you, don't let Solomon's downer ending get you too down. It's, it's a downer ending. He's, he's finished right here. Better yet is that is better than both is he who's never existed, who's not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Don't let that get you down. Remember, this text is in the context of an argument. And his argument is that God is sovereign over everything. The reason Solomon is defending the viewpoint that God is sovereign over everything is that it's the only way that man can have true peace or true joy or true fulfillment in this life, life under the sun. To prove my point, let's look ahead a little bit to the Solomon's conclusion to this section of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, we read verse 18. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. God ordains the times. God is sovereign. He makes every time beautiful and fitting in its time. And what's fitting here is It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. That is your portion. That is your lot. Because God is sovereign, you can do that. Accept what God gives you to do and do it with a cheerful heart. Because God is sovereign, you may enjoy because it is your lot. It is your heritage. Yes, oppression exists. Look to God when you have to suffer. Verse 19: As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. If God gives you the ability to have faith in Him, enjoy your work, and celebrate it, give thanks. God's giving you a gift. Verse 20, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. What he's saying there is that a man does not need to worry, does not need to dwell unduly on the days of his life. You don't need to worry because God has given you the joy of your of your work. So the conclusion is that of this whole section is that God is giving us good things. But in the midst of his argument here, he's bringing us into the deep valleys of life, into the harsh realities, the hard things. And the reason he's doing that is because the joy that he has for us is real joy. It's not a varnish. It's not a sunshine and lollipop joy. It's not a fair-weather friend. It's something that will be there through the hard times with us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. We are all Christians. All of Solomon's observations, inspired as they are, were the observations of a faithful Old Testament Jewish saint. However, we have further revelation. We have a greater than Solomon. And Jesus' life and words have been recorded and proclaimed for us. So let's turn briefly to Luke. Jesus announced his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in Luke 7, verses 22 and 23, where he replied to John's disciples who had asked whether he was the Messiah thus... Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. God is sovereign over everything, and he sent Jesus to start making things right here under the sun. But he is continuing that work in you and in me. In this meal, he binds us to himself. We are the body of Christ and Jesus teaches us how to accomplish God's work on the earth. Solomon told us that God wants us to enjoy our work, do good, and God will be the judge. Jesus tells us our work is to right the wrongs which Solomon observed. God's way of accomplishing his work under the sun here on the earth is by placing everything under his Son. S-O-N. Philippians 2, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his church.
0: Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.